HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. You are listening to Inside School Food, where conversation about K-12 food service digs deep in pursuit of solutions that really work. I'm Laura Stanley. Before we get started today, I want to remind listeners that we're in the middle of our summer membership drive. Heritage Radio is a not-for-profit that relies on the support of loyal listeners who value what we do. Please visit heritageradionetwork.org to learn how you can help. Okay, today's episode. You don't need to be a school food insider to have noticed that school food has been commanding headlines for well over a month now, as controversy rages over costs and complications associated with the implementation of stricter new nutrition standards. At issue is whether or not the rules should be relaxed. No more mandatory servings of fruits and vegetables, cancel the transition to 100% whole grains from the current required 50%, suspend further sodium reduction until the science is more clear on how low it needs to go, allow any part of the reimbursable meal to be sold separately as a competitive food so that children can bypass the balanced reimbursable meal for just a part of it. These measures would, it is hoped, help struggling districts bring participation back up and contain waste. If you're confused over who's on what side of this debate, you're not alone. The School Nutrition Association, once a powerful ally in the First Lady's Let's Move campaign and a staunch advocate for the stricter nutrition standards, is now promoting this relaxed version for child nutrition reauthorization in 2015. On the other side, a legion of public health and children's advocacy groups, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Heart Association, the National PTA, the National Education Association, the American Diabetes Association, Mission Readiness, and the Union of Concerned Scientists, among many others. 
In the House and Senate, conservatives are championing the SNA position and temporary waivers for struggling districts in advance of reauthorization in 2015, while progressives are defending what was originally a bipartisan initiative to improve the health of American kids, economically disadvantaged kids especially. So today, to help get some perspective on the situation, we're going to um, sidestep the politics and revisit the health question. Today's two guests, Dr. Juliana Cohen and Dr. Daniel Tabor, are the lead author researchers behind what is to date the only studies we have on how changes to the nutrition standards may be impacting student health. Because the changes have been hard and costly, and there is no denying that, we need to be looking carefully at whether or not they're doing any good. Dr. Julia Cohen is a research fellow in the nutrition department at the Harvard School of Public Health. Her current research focuses on innovative ways to encourage children to consume healthier foods at school and the impact that school-based nutrition policies have on children's consumption of competitive foods. So welcome, Dr. Cohen. Thank you for having me. So your study in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine really made headlines earlier this year. Uh, We first mentioned it here on Inside School Food in early May, along with the January 2014 report from the Government Accountability Office. The, The GAO reported serious problems with food waste, and your team did as well. But your, your study is mainly notable as a bearer of, of good news. Um, you found evidence that students may be consuming a great deal more fruit and vegetables, even as they continue to throw away vast quantities. Can, can you explain how both things can be true at the same time? Absolutely. So what we found were that, as you said, students were selecting and consuming much more of the healthier food items. Um, Despite this, while we were seeing high levels of food waste, throwing out nearly 40% of the food that they had on their tray, um, it was actually significantly less than they had been previously, which was over half the food on their tray. Okay, so that's interesting. So, so, so the waste actually went down slightly while consumption of the healthier food went up. Exactly. Right. So we did see decreases in waste overall, um, but we still don't want to see students throwing away 40% of their food, so there still is room for improvement. Right, right. And your study also looks at um, not just the fruit and vegetables on the plate and the amount consumed and the amount thrown away, but also um, a change in the entrees that occurred in connection with the, with the new uh, standards. So, you know, what were the entrees like before, and how did they change, and how was student acceptance around the change? So what the new guidelines required was that half of the grains had to be whole grains. Um, in addition, there were increases in vegetable or f- and fruit requirements and in their serving sizes as well. So beforehand, we were typically seeing um, sandwiches, um, pizza, very standard foods. Um, and afterwards, we were seeing not only a lot more whole grains, but also vegetables being incorporated into it in part to meet the vegetable requirement. Um, we also saw legumes like beans being incorporated, in, which kids really liked as well. So we did find an increase in, in entree consumption. So and let's backtrack and just talk about how the study took place, um, h- how you designed it and, and who was involved and how you collected the data and so forth. 
What we did was we had four schools in a low-income urban school district, and we collected something called plate waste data on over a 1,000 children, and we tracked the same kids over time. And to collect plate waste, what we did was we actually recorded what was on the tray when the students selected the food items in the cafeteria. They would sit down, they'd eat their meal, and then at the end of the meal, we'd collect their tray again, and we'd weigh every single item remaining on their tray. So we knew exactly how much they consumed of every food item that child selected. And because we were able to track the same child over time, we knew exactly what the same child ate both before and after the new standards went into effect. So, you know, how might we, you know, just looking at these four schools and they're, they're similar in their, their, where they are geographically and their socioeconomic spectrum, um, how does your investigation into these schools reflect on what we might find in looking at more schools across a wider spectrum, both geographically and socioeconomically. So I think it's important to note that these results, we believe, are generalizable to other low-income um, urban school districts. And this is especially important because these are the children that rely the most on school meals and are the most vulnerable. So they may have the greatest benefits from these healthier school meals. And we do think that further for research um, is warranted to look at other school districts as well. Um, yeah, so so, what would you say are the study's limitations, and you know what are the next steps in addressing those? Absolutely. Um, so we think that it would be helpful to study these school meals, for example, among high school students, um, and that in other demographic areas as well. And so these findings um, are significant, uh, e- even though we're just looking at four, four schools. I mean, there there really is a. a um, you can segue these findings into other uh, environments. How do you think your findings inform the current debate about the proposed rollback of the new nutrition standards? What I think is really important to note is that um, food service directors, teachers, um, school administrators are seeing waste in schools, and they're correct. There is a lot of waste in schools. But what's really important, what our research shows, is that this was a pre-existing problem. There was a lot of waste before then, but now there's just attention being paid to it. But what we are finding is that now that the school meals are healthier, the students are actually accepting them. So it would be misguided for us to roll back the standards to reduce waste because it probably wouldn't have that effect. There already was a lot of waste in school. What we need to focus on is how to um, work with the schools to keep the healthier foods, but also encourage the consumption of them and reduce the plate waste in other ways. Right. So in other words, uh, you know, rolling back the new nutrition standards would be um, in response to uh, an old problem and not a new one. Exactly. But also keep in mind that they were serving the less healthy foods before when we saw those high levels of waste. So the reality is, is that um, resorting to those less healthy meals probably won't actually change the waste levels in schools. That is a really important point. Well put. Thank you. Um, so, so moving forward, I, I know that you, you are really interested in um, quality improvement in school meals and um, interventions to reduce waste. You, you know, what, what's to be done about all the waste going forward? I mean, we're st- it, it's still upsetting regardless of, of the cause, right? 40% Absolutely. waste is We want children to be eating these meals, especially the low-income students who rely on these meals sometimes for up to half their calories every day. So it's so important that these kids are eating these healthier foods. And there's several ways that um, schools can do this. One is to really focus on the palatability of the foods. So it makes sense that 
people eat things that taste good. Um, one thing that we're doing right now is we're working with professional re- um, chefs to enhance the school meals, still working with the commodity foods that schools have available to them to make sure the meals are still affordable, but thinking about ways to improve the quality and the taste. Another thing that schools can do is improve the appearance of the foods. Um, So there's some work that's being done um, called consumer psychology, which changes the actual environment of the school cafeteria that helps nudge students to consume the healthier foods as well. And this is uh, work that's being done um, through the Harvard School of Public Health? That's correct. That's research that we're currently doing. That's great. Um, Any idea when we're going to be start, you know, we can start to see results from that? We are going to be submitting results very soon, so we hope to get it out as quickly as possible. We need They're it. They're very encouraging. Yeah, we need it, so hurry up. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, uh, Dr. Cohen, I hope your research remains part of the conversation over the fate of the standards. I'm really thrilled you were able to join us today to refresh our memories about it. Um, listeners, for further information about this study, which is called Impact of the New U.S. Department of Agricultural School Meal Standards on Food Selection, Consumption, and Waste, that's a mouthful. Um, but you can get more about it on Inside School Food on Facebook. Uh, we have been visiting with Dr. Juliana Cohen of the Harvard School of Public Health. Next up, after station break, Dr. Daniel Tabor of the University of Texas School of Public Health. Hi, I'm Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. Do you love us? Do you really? Do you count on us for real food news and content? Well, we need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a not-for-profit organization, which means we depend on underwriting, grants, and the support of members like you to keep broadcasting. Help keep our voice alive. Visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org and click the Donate button today. We promise to never stop in our mission to create a world that's more sustainable, equitable, and delicious by expanding the way eaters think about food. Thanks for listening, and thanks for showing your support. From simple to gourmet, nothing's fresher or tastier in recipes than homegrown, vine-ripened veggies and savory herbs. Do you grow your own? With Bonnie Plants, a kitchen garden at your back door or in containers can produce an amazing harvest for cooking and for sharing. Find how-tos, plans, and more at bonnieplants.com. Your recipes might not change, but your results sure will. Fresh, healthy Bonnie veggies and herbs. Get growing. Welcome back to Inside School Food. Today's episode is a little different. We normally talk about tools and tips, practical problems, and practical solutions. But today we're wading into research that may tell us something about how increased portions of fruits and vegetables may be positively impacting consumption and even student health. There isn't a lot of research available yet, as the new standards have been in place for just two years, but what we do have makes for pretty riveting reading, and we're featuring it all on the show today. So joining us now is Dr. Daniel Tabor, Assistant Professor at the University of Texas School of Public Health. He is a specialist in childhood obesity research who has conducted numerous studies to evaluate how school nutrition policies affect students' diet and weight status. We're going to be talking about two studies for which he was the lead author, both published in 2013. Both these of these studies look at outcomes in fruit and vegetable consumption and student health in states that were ahead of the curve in putting stricter nutrition standards in place. In other words, before they were made mandatory nationwide. So Dr. Tabor, welcome to Inside School Food. Thank you for having me. 
You're welcome. Thrilled to have you. Um, So in both these studies, you were looking for possible impacts in states that were early adopters of stricter nutrition standards. Um, How would you characterize these early adopters as a group? Uh, Well, the thing that they shared in common is exactly that, that they realized that they needed to make changes um, because childhood obesity was such a problem in these states. Um, otherwise, they're kind of an eclectic group, particularly in this study we did that focused on fruit and vegetable requirements. Mm-hmm. Uh, that study focused just on California and Mississippi, which might seem like an odd couple, but the two of them, what they shared in common is that they had implemented stricter requirements for fruit and vegetables in school meals, um, both of them realizing what a problem they had with childhood obesity. Um, there's For the most part, when you look at states that have been the early adopters that have made a lot of changes in school nutrition, there's kind of a misconception that it tends to be more liberal states that are making changes, and that's a very partisan uh, topic. Mm -hmm. But it's really not, because a lot of the changes have happened in the South um, in more conservative states. Some some of the earliest changes came from states like Arkansas and Texas and Mississippi that realized what a problem they had with childhood obesity. So that's really what these states share in common is realizing that action needed to be taken. Right, right. And then um, as a group, again, how close were their uh, standards to the standards that are now in place nationwide? Uh, They were not, overall, they were not as strict as current uh, national standards. Mm -hmm. Um, They all contained certain provisions that were similar to new standards, but none of them were as comprehensive. Right. And, and they varied one state to the next. Right, right. So, so if anything, the impacts you observed, um, you know, may be greater now if you're to measure them again because the standards are even stricter. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So l- let's start with the research um, published in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine. Um, this study and the Harvard study that we uh, just talked about both report a connection between larger servings of fruits and vegetables and significantly increased consumption of fruits and vegetables. So um, we've just heard Dr. Cohen describe what her research found, and your your findings regarding consumption outcomes are comparable despite a very different research protocol. So can you describe how you went about uh, gathering data for, for your study? Right. So we took advantage of a national data set called the Nutrition uh, Youth Physical Activity and Nutrition Study that had collected data on students' fruit and vegetable consumption back in 2010, uh, prior to when new USDA standards were implemented. And this was when California and Mississippi already had stronger requirements for fruit and vegetables uh, that needed to be served in school meals. And we compared those two states to the other states in the study um, in terms of how much fruits and vegetables students were consuming each day. And in that study, we particularly broke it down by uh, how often students were uh, consuming school meals mm-hmm. and as well as what they had access to at home. Because that's really what the National School Lunch Program is all about, is trying to provide healthy foods, particularly for students who may not have access to healthy foods outside of school as much. And what we found is that that's where you saw the most benefit was among the students who reported that they had less access to fruits and vegetables at home and relied on school meals more. That's where you saw an, uh, evidence of higher fruit and vegetable consumption in California and Mississippi compared to the other states in the study. Right, right. So a real difference for those kids where the need is greatest. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So your AGPM study and Dr. Cohen's study um, really are the best reporting we have to date on changes to fruit and vegetable consumption. Um, as a result of mandatory larger servings. Um, So where do we go from here? Uh, Dr. Cohen talked a little bit about it. Um, it, From where you sit, what direction do you think research 
could and should take um, looking at the, the impact of larger servings? Well, I think Dr. Cohen's study was a great first step of just seeing the, the changes that we saw when you compare before uh, to after USDA changes. Mm-hmm. I think we need to continue to do longitudinal research like that and continue to look at other dietary behaviors, um, particularly as newer standards regarding whole grains uh, are implemented. And ultimately, we want to see a difference in obesity. Uh, at the same time, I think you need to be realistic about how long it may take before you see a decline in obesity in response to uh, school lunch standards. Uh, at the same time, I think we definitely need to consider uh, increases in food waste or other potentially negative consequences um, because that's an important part of policy research is looking at the unintended effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we need to look at both what policies are designed to do, which is improve students' diet and reduce obesity, as well as what they're not designed to do, which is <laughs> increase food waste. That's right. what we don't want to see. Right. But I think that's something we need to continue to look at. Right, right. So speaking of obesity, let, let's turn to the study um, that you did for the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics. We'll, we'll call it JAMAPED for short, okay? Um, th- this study is the only one to date that, that looks at obesity outcomes. Um, h- how is it designed? So what we did is, again, we were focusing on states that were ahead of the curve, like you said, because they already had standards that exceeded the USDA's previous standards. And we took a unique approach in that study because we compared, rather than just compare states with uh, stronger standards to states with old standards, uh, we compared those states in terms of the difference in obesity prevalence between students who get lunch at school and students who don't, Mm -hmm. and particularly breaking it down by whether students were eligible for free or reduced price lunches. Because, again, that's really what the program, the population that the program is designed to serve is students who come from low-income households. Uh, who are eligible for free and reduced price lunches. And those students, you typically see a higher prevalence in those students because they're at a higher risk because they come from low-income households. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to see if that difference is reduced when you provide healthier school meals. And that's exactly what we found. Um, Frankly, I was really surprised by just the magnitude of the effect that we saw. I was hoping for just a small reduction in the difference in obesity prevalence. But the, the difference was virtually wiped out in the states that had stronger school meal standards. So this suggested that when you implement healthier standards, that's when the school lunch program does what it's designed to do of providing healthier foods and reducing obesity for students right. who come from low-income households. Right. Just to clarify, when you say the difference was wiped out, the difference between two populations? Yeah. The difference between students who are eligible for free and reduced price mm-hmm. lunches and and get such lunches at school right. versus students who don't get lunch at wow. school. That, that is really powerful. Um, so this study also looked at student purchasing of less healthy snack foods as a possible unintended consequence of stricter lunchroom standards, which is something everyone is worried about right now. Um, how did you accomplish that and what did you find out? So the survey that students completed asked them what they were uh, purchasing at school, if they were purchasing sweets, uh, salty snacks, and and sugar-sweetened beverages. And we took the same approach in comparing students who um, got lunch at school to students who did not, and then compared states with different standards. And we found no evidence that students, particularly free and reduced price lunch students, that they were purchasing more sweets or more snacks or more sugar-sweetened beverages. So there was no reason to believe that they were compensating for healthier lunches by purchasing more unhealthy foods elsewhere. Right. That's a really important outcome because we have been assuming just the opposite. So that's that's the power of research right there. 
Yeah, exactly. That's something I try to look at in all the studies that I'm doing is mm -hmm. how students might be compensating for healthier changes. Right, right. Very surprising and very encouraging. Um, so, you know, here's the $64,000 question, you know, how would you say your findings inform the current debate about the proposed rollback of new nutrition standards? I mean, it's certainly encouraging evidence that we need to stick to these standards because the studies that I've done uh, and the study that Dr. Cohen has, has conducted are really valuable in suggesting that healthier standards can have a positive impact. Uh, they're not conclusive, but they are one-sided. We consistently see positive evidence. Um, compare that to research that has been done looking at uh, school meal programs before standards were updated. Those results were consistently discouraging. They consistently found that students who ate lunch at school tended to be, uh, they were more likely to be obese and had a less healthy diet. That's something we saw over and over and over again. Right. So, you know, nutrition research often pr produces contradictory findings that can kind of confuse uh, the public, understandably, but this is an issue that's as black and white as you're going to get, is that old nutrition standards were not providing healthier uh, meals for students, at least not in the U.S. as a whole. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to think that going back to old standards would have a positive impact on students' health, but we do have some evidence to suggest that sticking to new, healthier standards can have a positive impact. Right. And as you say, not conclusive, but really um, exciting. So, you know, for further understanding of, of obesity outcomes, um, you know, what do you think the research community should be tackling next? Like, or are you aware of anything that's in the pipeline that we should be aware of? Uh, well, I'm continuing to look at uh, the effects of various school nutrition policies and also looking at how it depends. It may depend on factors outside of school. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that we definitely need to be looking at as now uh, nutrition standards are implemented for other school, uh, foods and beverages that are sold at school, like in vending machines and other venues around school, is we need to look at is that comprehensive approach, you know, tackling both school meals and vending machines and school stores, uh, does that have more of an effect on obesity? Mm -hmm. But I think we also need to consider factors outside of school and looking at whether, you know, if, say, you make all these positive changes in school, but a fast food outlet is across the street from school, do you see less of an impact? Mm -hmm. uh, because that's the concern I have is that a lot of times uh, children from low-income areas tend to have access to more unhealthy food outside of school. So is that going to counteract any positive changes we make in school? Right. So right. that's something that I'm working on right now. Yeah, great, great. So um, you recently blogged about another blog post by Marian Nessel in which she refers to both of the studies we're talking about today. So that's very meta, you know, only on the Internet, right? Um, so, and, and you talked about the, the dueling infographics that she she writes about. Um, and, and you talk about it because one of the infographics involves your research. Can, can you talk about what, what you wrote there and, and um, you know, basically the comparison of your, the infographic about your work as opposed to the infographic um, that's been produced by the SNA? Yeah, what I found fascinating about Dr. Nessel's blog is that as she was comparing them is that you had the one that was focused, that was designed by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that was focused entirely on student health. And then you had the one designed by the School Nutrition Association that was focused more on money and food waste and anything but student health. And I think that's what I've personally been a little bit frustrated by in the discussion on this topic coming from the School Nutrition Association is that they don't seem to be talking about student health very much, uh, and they don't seem to even acknowledge 
uh, the positive evidence that healthier nutrition standards have had a positive impact on student health. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely don't discount the uh, evidence that they're concerned about, about mm-hmm. increasing food waste or lower participation. You know, as I wrote in my blog, I think those are things we need to look at, we need to analyze them more, and we need to address them. But there's a big difference between addressing these issues uh, versus just saying, well, let's just go back to the way things were. And I think even to just allow some schools to opt out of standards as they've proposed, I know they're not proposing to go back to the way things were, Mm -hmm. but even allowing some schools to opt out. Another thing that research consistently shows is that when you have weaker policies that just sort of encourage changes or recommend changes, and I think opting out would be an example of that, mm-hmm. that's when you see no effect. Right. Uh, that's something you see over and over again in the science is that weaker policies like that that allow opt out, it's like doing nothing. You just never see a positive impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So hey. I think we... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, you, you just, you, you can, you, one of the lines that you had at the finish of the blog was admitting problems and admitting defeat are two different things, which I th- thought was a powerful idea. Yeah, because it, almost every policy comes with both positive and negative effects. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's pretty standard. But to look at the negative effects and declare that the policy was a failure, I think, is just the wrong approach to take. I mean, we have to look at all the positive evidence. Uh, that healthier school meals can have a positive impact on student health and then weigh those against the downsides that we've seen so far and then consider can can we overcome these downsides and that's what I see the policy advocates really trying to do mm-hmm. is admitting that there are challenges but saying we, we can address those challenges let's find a way to do that right right so Dr. Daniel Tabor it's been a privilege having you on the show today Um, this is really important work we've been talking about Um, I have posted further information about it including a link to your blog post on the inside school food Facebook page so listeners please like us when you when you're there and please tell us what you think of today's episode so you have been listening to Inside School Food, a special episode about the most cutting-edge research currently available about how the new nutrition standards may be making a difference for students, lower-income students especially. Next week, join us for a conversation about processors who care, nimble, small, and mid-sized manufacturers who will develop healthy products to your specs, train your staff, and even parachute in to tackle your problems face-to-face. I'm Laura Stanley. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.